I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Back in 2019... Boris Johnson won a landslide victory based on one promise he made to the nation. Let's get this thing done. We've got an oven-ready deal. Put it in the microwave. This deal is ready to go. You just whack it in the microwave. <laughs> gas mark. Gas mark. I don't know what... Well, I'm not very good at cooking, but, you know. But on Tuesday, in the hallowed chambers of Parliament, where laws are made and treaties are ratified, for once, the opposite was happening as the government announced it was preparing to tear up part of the oven-ready deal it had signed. I am announcing our intention to introduce legislation in the coming weeks to make changes in the protocol. How do you feel about the Northern Ireland protocol being ripped up? Well, this is, this is a really dangerous move for the, for the government to want to make at this stage. The announcement unleashed an angry response not least from the Tory backbenchers. Respect for the rule of law, Mr Speaker, runs deep in our Tory veins. I find it extraordinary that a Tory government needs to be reminded of that. Well, we fully respect the rule of law and we're very clear that this bill is in line with international law. As Boris Johnson flew into Belfast this week to sell his new plan... It met with a very mixed response. We've had a a very frustrating meeting uh, with the Prime Minister. It's a reckless course of action. It is a question of the government doing the right thing. What you cannot do is sit for another six months talking about the very same issue, an Irish sea border, that is not required and is not wanted and is not needed in any shape or form. The Brexit that Boris Johnson chose uh, ripped up uh, the constitutional a calmness that we have created from the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, This is all of his making. And now the EU is not happy and it looks like we could be on the brink of a trade war. So why, more than two years after the Brexit withdrawal agreement was signed, is the Northern Ireland Protocol still such a sticking point? And for those of us who don't remember the debate the first time round, what exactly is it? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, the protocol 
ultimatum. I'm Oliver Wright, policy editor at The Times. Oliver, take us back a few weeks to the election in Northern Ireland, how that moment has led to huge policy implications here in Westminster. I mean, everyone anticipated it, but until the actual votes were counted, no one was sure. Today represents a very significant moment of change. That Friday, as the votes came in, it became very apparent that not only had the DUP, the largest unionist party in Northern Ireland, suffered a historic defeat, but for the first time Sinn Féin, that was years ago the political wing of the IRA, was going to form the majority party in the government in Northern Ireland. Today ushers in a new era, which I believe presents us all with an opportunity to reimagine relationships in this society on the basis of fairness, on the basis of equality and on the basis of social justice. Now, that has huge consequences for both the peace process and for the wider relationship between the United Kingdom, Northern Ireland and indeed the Republic of Ireland and, of course, the elephant in the room, Brexit. Was it a surprise when suddenly it led to an announcement in Westminster, rumblings in Westminster, of looking again at the protocol? So there have been rumours in the weeks and indeed the months before that the government was thinking about doing something on this. But obviously they're constrained in what they can do in the run-up to an election. There are quite strict rules over what the government can announce in the run-up to elections. But behind the scenes, it was pretty clear that something was going on and that they were waiting for the results of those elections to announce it. And indeed, you you saw pretty much as soon as those elections had taken place, very quickly moves in Whitehall to make this announcement. There were rumours that it was going to be in the Queen's speech of plans to effectively rip up the Northern Ireland Protocol that Boris Johnson himself signed in 2019. The Democratic Unionists have made it abundantly clear that they've no intention of restoring power sharing until the government addresses their concerns over the Northern Ireland Protocol, that a controversial border in the Irish Sea. Are you going to do that in the Queen's speech on Tuesday? Well, I recognise the challenges with the Northern Ireland Protocol for people across unionism. And actually, the protocol is causing problems for people across Northern Ireland. It's not just about unionist parties or any one party. Now, in the end, the government didn't want their own Queen's speech to be overshadowed by this announcement. But slightly unfortunately for Johnson and his ministers, by that stage, everyone knew about it. So what they were planning to do still dominated the news, even though they didn't want to announce it at that point. Uh, representing the government this morning is the university's minister, Michelle Donnellan. Hello to you. Thank you for joining us on the programme this morning. Lots to talk about. I want to start with Northern Ireland, though. It's a stalemate. Um, what's the British government going to do? Our priority, of course, is to deal with the, the problem head on. The Northern Ireland Protocol is not working. And I, I, I believe, you know... The, Ultimately, the, the DUP uh, ran last week uh, in an election. We ran on the mandate that the protocol must go. Uh, The protocol is doing immense damage to Northern Ireland, both economically and constitutionally. It was pretty clear right from the outset that 
unless Johnson moved in some way on the protocol, the DUP were not going to go back into government. They didn't particularly want to go back into government anyway, especially with Sinn Féin having the first minister's job. And without sort of action from London, it was felt that you know, there wasn't a hope of them going back into government. Now, there's one sort of wrinkle to this, which is you know, under the current legislative framework for Northern Ireland, unless you've got a functioning government within six months, you then have fresh elections. So I think there was a degree of pressure for the government to act and to act quickly because you've got that sort of ticking clock, as it were. And in the weeks that have followed, it's been in the headlines constantly. Yeah, so now we have finally got the details of of what they want to do. We haven't seen the legislation itself, but we know broadly what that legislation will do. And effectively, I mean... Listeners will remember we talked endlessly about Article 16, whether the government would trigger Article 16, which would effectively disapply certain bits of the protocol. And this is an entirely new strategy. This is saying, you know, we ourselves as the UK government are going to introduce a new law which will change bits of the protocol and would change it unilaterally. You know, the EU will have a very limited say in that if we go ahead and that legislation is passed because the situation is unsustainable. That's the broad details of what we will get when the legislation is finally published. Take us back a step, because I think for a lot of people, we've been talking about the Northern Ireland Protocol now for years, but for a lot of people, it still sort of makes you groan slightly. (laughs) (laughs) And, And I think it's very easy to forget exactly what it means and how it's applied. What is the Northern Ireland Protocol? The Northern Ireland Protocol was designed to deal with a conundrum which sort of bedeviled the entire Brexit process. The fundamental difficulty was if the United Kingdom left the European Single Market and Customs Union, as was the policy of the government, you had this huge difficulty about how you dealt with goods crossing over between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, because the Republic of Ireland was going to remain within the European Union, part of the single market, part of the customs union, yet... Northern Ireland would be part of the UK, outside the single market and outside the customs union. But the overriding priority from the Good Friday Agreement was to prevent a land border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, which was seen as absolutely fundamental to preserving the peace settlement. So there Mm. would not be checks on goods, on people, on anything crossing over between Northern Ireland and the Republic. It's worth reminding people why that's important because, you know, in the 1970s, 1980s, to cross between Northern Ireland and the Republic meant queuing up in a length of traffic, going through a very, very heavily defended security position, being asked if you had any goods, having goods taken away. Things like wedding cakes were confiscated for being passed between wow. the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland. And it has a very, very deep memory particularly amongst nationalists in Northern Ireland, about the troubles and about the problems. So the overriding priority was to prevent that hard border in Northern Ireland. But if you're going to do that, you've got to have a border somewhere. So the protocol, as it was signed, effectively put the border in the Irish Sea. So Northern Ireland effectively remained within the EU's customs union and single market, despite the fact that it was part of the United Kingdom. And you've got to have a border somewhere because we presumably at some point will be changing the rules. So we won't be meeting European guidelines on on, um, potatoes or, or how we produce chicken and things like that. Exactly. And if, if, you know, the European Union all the way along was fairly clear that if the UK agreed to follow and 
abide by European rules standards, then there would be no need to have a border. But the government, for pretty understandable reasons, didn't want to tie themselves to that. So you do have to have a border. It's not really necessarily about, you know, the situation on the ground as it is today. It's what the situation on the ground might look like in 5, 10, 15 years' time, as you say, when the UK could have a very different sort of regulatory regime than the rest of the European Union. So we've ended up with a system where we have this semi-border in the Irish Sea where there are customs checks, there are checks on products as they go over. What is it that the government wants to change now? In what way do they want to overturn the protocol? So the government's argument is the only thing that needs to be checked are goods and food that is destined for the Republic of Ireland and for the European Union, that there shouldn't be any checks on those products that are destined for Northern Ireland. And they say that there are other ways of ensuring that products that shouldn't enter the EU don't enter the EU. So their plan is to have what they call a a green lane, whereby an exporter will say, this particular product, whether it be a sort of ham sandwich or a computer, is destined for Northern Ireland, and that won't be checked. Whereas if an exporter says, I'm sending this to the Republic, then it will undergo the usual customs checks. And they say that technology being what it is and data being what it is, there is actually no need to check everything using intelligence, law enforcement, data. If anyone does try and smuggle something into a republic, you will be able to spot that, you'll be able to clamp down on that. And therefore, the kind of bureaucracy that the EU is suggesting is needed simply isn't and that there is a smarter way of doing things. And I mean, in a way, that sort of makes sense. You know, if, if, for example, you've got a supermarket here, which also has branches in Northern Ireland, you know, you're sending stuff to Northern Ireland. It's not crossing the border. I imagine, though, if you're in Southern Ireland, if you're in the Republic of Ireland, you're probably worried that not everything that goes in the Green Lane is necessarily going to stay in Northern Ireland. I mean, how do you check that? And it's difficult. And, you know, there's a long history of smuggling between the north and south of Ireland going back, you know, decades and decades and decades. But more, perhaps more boringly and more importantly, from the EU's point of view, it's about a legal framework. The EU, if anything, is a real sort of legal entity. And they say, we can't just, you know, rip up our rules because it suits you. These are the rules. You know, we understand there are problems. We will try and work to solve some of those problems. But ultimately, you know, we are not prepared to change our laws simply to get you out of a bind. And just describe for us how much of a bind it is. I mean, for people who are trying to export goods from here to Northern Ireland... What does it mean now? How difficult is that? So it's bureaucratic. It's a bit more lengthy. But one of the things, and this is again an issue of if contention, is when the protocol came into effect after the end of the transition period, the EU agreed certain sort of easements to last for a defined period of time to help businesses, to help consumers adapt. So, for Mm. example, there aren't the same checks on food products going to Northern Ireland, which there would be if the protocol was implemented in full, because there was this transition period when none of those checks are taking place. So actually, there's a bit more bureaucracy, but it's not too bad. The real issue comes is, you know, the negotiations between Britain and the EU over the protocol at that point, those easements would finish. And so what the government says is, well, actually, we're going to move to a situation where things are actually even worse than they are at the moment. Ah. And that is what we can't abide. 
And I mean, do we have a sense of when that would be kicking in? I mean, at the moment, the government has unilaterally extended these so-called grace periods, and the EU has sort of quietly acquiesced to them. They've, they've, let it they've go. sort of shrugged their shoulders and said this isn't really quite right, and you know we'll have to think about legal proceedings. But they haven't actually taken any kind of retaliatory action, right. and you know yet. Interestingly, you saw Archie Norman, who is the chairman of Marks and Spencers. He was making the point that Marks and Spencers has stores both in the Republic of Ireland and in Northern Ireland. And he mm. said the time it takes to fill in the forms to send products to their stores in Northern Ireland is about two hours, but it's about nine hours to send the same products to those in the Republic of Ireland. Wagons arriving in the Republic of Ireland have to carry 700 pages of documentation some of the descriptors, particularly of animal product, have to be written in Latin. It has to be in a certain typeface. At the moment in Northern Ireland, we've got what's called an easement, so the controls aren't the same. But the EU are looking for us to impose comparable controls for Northern Ireland. And were that to happen, it would mean that quite a lot of products from the UK simply wouldn't get to Northern Ireland. When those grace periods finish, it becomes much, much more complicated. The number of vets you've got to employ. He said, he said, you know, if you're sending a sandwich, each individual element of the sandwich needs to have a particular kind of export certificate, even the butter. Um, oh, wow. And he said it is just immensely complicated and immensely time-consuming. And he questioned whether many people would carry on trading with Northern Ireland. Now, then you go back into the big P politics of Northern Ireland and you know, the troubles and the very strong feeling amongst unionists that you know what Brexit has resulted in is a disconnect between Northern Ireland and the rest of the United Kingdom, which they feel very strongly about as a matter of identity. In a way, what could be seen as quite sort of bureaucratic, dull customs checks has a massive political resonance with the unionist community. Coming up, we'll look at that political resonance and what the protocol means for the Good Friday Agreement. Also, why does so much of the debate seem to feature sausages? Yeah, really. That's after a quick message from a colleague. Hello, I'm Jane Mulkerens, Associate Editor of The Times magazine. By listening in, you make it possible for me to bring you exclusive stories that you won't get anywhere else. Get to the heart of the stories that matter every day with The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today and enjoy one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync... 
things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Talk us through a particular example, because it keeps coming up, and I think everyone's going to want to know why, of sausages. <laughs> why has that become totemic? Sausages? I mean... Political so- debate. When we first started writing about sausages, it was a sort of novelty story. Um, it's very bizarre. Basically, the European Union has codes for every kind of import that they might want to have into the bloc. But because actually, in terms of food, the European Union was quite self-contained and was not importing that much food from outside the European Union, and much of the food that it was buying in, it couldn't make itself, never had a code for chilled, processed, uncooked meat. So Mm. be that sausages, be that burgers. So as a result of the fact that the rules have never changed and there isn't a code, it is therefore illegal to bring that kind of product into the European Union. Illegal? Yeah. Now, obviously, because Northern Ireland, to all intents and purposes, is part of the EU's customs union... You therefore can't bring in sausages or burgers into Northern Ireland. And it's a real sort of, it's a marvellous kind of unintended consequence. No one, when we first started writing about it, everyone sort of scratched their head and said, yeah, no, I suppose that is right. Yeah, no, there isn't a code for that. Well, And then they'd say things like, well, if you froze it first, you could bring it in because that would be a different product code. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and the people of Northern Ireland clearly like their sausages, so this is this is turning into a national crisis. Yeah, I mean, that's one thing I've always meant to do, which is actually look at the you know, amount of sausages that are actually brought into Northern Ireland from Britain, because actually our, Irish sausages are a thing in themselves, yes. and most sausages consumed in Ireland are made in Ireland, but it's certainly, it's certainly become a totemic sort of, issue. It gets to one of the arguments in all of this, which is just that it, some of this does seem to be just unnecessary bureaucracy. I mean, what, why... Why can't they just come up with a new code? They could, but, you know, the politics of this, and, you know, it's perhaps it's easy to overstate it, which is there is a sense within Brussels and some big European countries, I think, you know, France springs to mind, of slight insouciance of, well, look, you know, you did Brexit, you voted for Brexit, you signed this deal, you knew what you were signing. We are not going to bend over backwards and spend our time rewriting EU laws for a problem that you created yourself. And you could counter that, well, what about the peace process in Northern Ireland? Well, I mean, maybe I'm being unfair to them, but 
I think there is certainly an element within other European countries to which the Northern Ireland peace process, the Northern Ireland conflict indeed, is something of a problem in a faraway country of which they know little and care less. And their main concern is their own interests. They say they care about the peace process, but how far they're actually prepared to move and double down to change their own laws, to spend time, to have negotiations over some of this quite detailed technical stuff, I mean, the answer is not a great deal. Mm. In a way, that sort of brings us to the, the crux of a lot of this. Take us back to the Good Friday Agreement and why that's still playing out in, in the politics now. I mean, the Good Friday Agreement was probably one of the greatest successes of British statecraft, arguably since the Second World War. The principle of consent is absolute and is throughout the agreement. And the breakthrough is that that is now accepted by all North and South. Also, those who believe in a united island can make that case now by persuasion, not violence or threats. It was a compromise, really, which managed to secure a ceasefire on behalf of the Republicans, managed to get the Unionists to agree to going into government and power sharing with the Republicans, which was very important. But at its heart was this idea that Northern Ireland could both look south to the Republic and it could look east towards Britain. People living in Northern Ireland felt that they had a foot in both camps and a stake in both camps. And that was the sort of overarching idea. And it was summed up, and Boris Johnson brought this up again, of the British government saying it had no selfish interest in Northern Ireland, i.e. if at any stage a majority of people in Northern Ireland wanted to join the Republic, then the government wouldn't stand in the way of that, while promising to protect unionist interests. This was all put together within the Good Friday Belfast Agreement, which was itself slightly an inadequate document. I mean, you have to remember it was it was negotiated late, late into the night. There were rows on all sides. Nobody knew if it was actually going to come off or not. A lot of it is cleverly worded to get final sign-off at 4am in the morning. Um, it does have, you know, sort of mythical significance. And, you know, both sides argue mutually contradictory points. The unionists say that the protocol undermines the Good Friday Agreement and the nationalist community would say that if the protocol wasn't there, that would undermine the Good Friday Agreement and slightly never the twain shall meet. The truth is a little bit in the middle. Yeah. I mean, if the Good Friday Agreement was about pivoting to both sides, then you can see why why it argued both ways. Yeah, and arguably the protocol... What elements of the protocol as it stands is extraordinarily good for Northern Ireland because it gives them unfettered access to the entirety of the European Union's market, be that in the Republic or Germany or France, as well as absolute unfettered access to the UK mm. market. So if you were a company thinking, where am I going to set up business? I'm going to set up in Ireland somewhere. Chances are you're going to choose to locate yourself in Northern Ireland because that gives you access without any kind of bureaucracy to two markets. But it is much more complicated as if you are a small business in Northern Ireland who is relying on suppliers from Britain, then you're not going to like the protocol 
very much you know you can export wherever you like but it's yeah. the sort of the importation of you know raw materials goods whatever which causes problems and then you know it is also it becomes difficult on a sort of practical level for individuals getting packages sent from the UK. There was a big row over plants, for example, that there's a European Union rule that you can't bring in soil from outside the European Union. So you effectively, you can't import bedding plants. Now, you know, oh. that gets to sort of, you know, small C conservative voters who want to go down to the garden centre and find that actually their choice is limited. Now, the European Union would say, well, I mean, you could get it from Britain, but you know, you can get it elsewhere as well. So you can see the kind of issues that, that play out on the ground. And, and it's difficult, isn't it? I mean, it does feel like it sort of swings and roundabouts. So for, for Sinn Féin, the protocol is great. It allows them sort of unfettered access to the South. For unionists, I mean, you can see why they're annoyed. There yeah. is suddenly a border between them and the rest of the UK. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I think even Sinn Féin would accept that the protocol is not without its problems. And to be fair to the European Union, they have acknowledged that there are problems, but mm. you know, arguably they haven't gone far enough to address them. And in terms of the, the businesses, you know, some benefit, some don't. Mm. Even that, would you have more benefit, more, more big companies, for example, moving to Northern Ireland to make use of the fact that it's got a foot in both camps, if they just knew what the position was? Is part of the problem here that we just have these yes. endless grace periods and nobody quite knows where it's going I think that's probably land. right. Um, and also, there's been a huge amount of economic disruption overall since the end of the transition period, and businesses aren't thinking massively about huge expansion just at the moment as it is. But you know, certainly in the long term, you would expect Northern Ireland to see the economic benefits of the protocol. I think what is interesting is, you know, as Johnson's own political problems have built up and his own position within the parliamentary party has become less secure, so the need to show that he is doing something decisive on the protocol has become more important. Now, it's not entirely fair to blame this on Partygate in any way, because I think the government, even before that, looked quite seriously at triggering Article 16 in sort of October last year. But it is certainly the case since the Partygate revelations came out that he has been told in no uncertain terms that he needs to take action on this. And there are a number of MPs who feel extraordinarily strongly on this issue. Johnson is in part responding to some of that pressure in terms of acting now. You mentioned Article 16, another one of those terms that I think just needs a reminder. Just remind us again what it means and how it works. Again, it's a bit complicated. It's an article within the Northern Ireland Protocol itself, which effectively allows either side to temporarily suspend elements of the protocol if, I think the phrase is, it's causing severe societal or economic consequences. But the idea is that it should be as any sort of suspension should be as limited as possible and should be for as short as possible time. And it goes for arbitration and the other side can take retaliatory action. And I think the reason they fundamentally decided not to go down that route was because some of the things that they've now done, you know, they could have they could have done Article 16 for some things. But I think the, the legal advice was if these are the package of things you want to do, you can't do it all under Article 16. You need to think of a different mechanism. So that's why they've gone down the legislative route rather than Article 16. 
And how how is that going to work out, the legislative process? Because you know, it hasn't come up in the Queen's speech. No. It feels sort of all a little bit uncertain at the moment. It is, it is a bit uncertain. So what do we know? I mean, we know that they have promised to publish the legislation within weeks. Then it's a question of how quickly they try and get legislation through the Commons. And there will be some Tory MPs that are opposed to it. And there will be quite a lot of Conservative peers in the House of Lords who are opposed to it. The question really is, how much opposition and how long will it take? Now, that is really hard to say, but I think there was a feeling that they had to act sooner rather than later because, again, going back to what we were talking about earlier about this six-month deadline before new elections in Northern Ireland, Mm. they need to be able to show progress within that time frame. The second question, to which no one really knows the answer, is... How much of this is a sort of feign by the government to try and say to the EU, well, look, this is much worse over here. Come back to the negotiating table, otherwise you're going to get it with our legislation. And Liz Truss has been very clear that she sees it, as she describes it, a parallel process so that they're going to continue negotiating with the European Union Uh, while this legislation goes through. So the legislation is more a threat. Yeah, and I think the sense is that it's being used to concentrate minds. Now... The danger is that the European Union thinks, well, I'm not going to put up with this, what they would see as effective blackmail, and it actually poisons the negotiations and makes it harder to come to a compromise agreement, in which case both sides very reluctantly might actually have to follow through on their threats. And Oliver, is there a sense, you know, you mentioned again there the six-month deadline for new Northern Irish elections if they haven't managed to get a government together, and it is one of the reasons why this has come up now. I think a lot of people will be looking at that and just being slightly baffled by it because, you know, if the election showed us anything, it's that Sinn Féin won, the Unionists lost votes to other parties, and it does seem like Northern Ireland actually voted for the protocol. So it seems like an odd trigger to be overturning it. Yes. I mean, Northern Ireland did vote for the protocol, but it has a very different type of political settlement than anywhere else in the UK. You know, the government, in order for there to be a government, there have to be representatives of both communities. Mm. And lots of people argue that you should change the settlement and have more normal politics in Ireland, which would allow other parties to come up who aren't of either a sort of unionist or a nationalist tradition. But that's what we have. And it is hard to say a straight majority voted in favour of the protocol, therefore the sizeable minority that care about it from one community should be silenced and told, well, you've got to get on with it. That would be counter to everything which the Good Friday Belfast Agreement tried to achieve, and that would certainly trigger huge unrest. Whether that spills over to violence or whatever, I don't know. But if you were effectively ignoring what is still a majority in Northern Ireland, although many unionists are voting for non-affiliated parties, you would still be turning around and saying, well, just sort of lump it. And I'm not sure that's acceptable. I'm not sure what the consequences would be if you did that. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, policy editor for The Times, Oliver Wright. You can find all of Oliver's work at thetimes.co.uk with a subscription. 
The episode today was produced by Taryn Siegel. The executive producer is Kate Ford. And sound design was by David Crackles. If you learned anything from this podcast, if you enjoyed listening to it, then please do leave us a review. It'll help others to find it. And if you'd like to get in touch with us with any thoughts on what you've just heard or any ideas for future episodes, then please do drop us an email to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. Thanks for listening. See you next week.